Jesus Christ is building his church. Can I get an amen? amen? If you grew up in the church, you might think about that and go, oh, obviously I know what that means. But for, for those of you who maybe didn't, um, that doesn't mean that we are building, you know, beautiful structures all over the world. And even though there are some great ones, I was at Duke University this past week, actually, I was down in North Carolina for a conference. They have an amazing chapel there. You should look it up online. It's just beautiful. But that's not what we mean when we talk about Christ building his church. We're talking about him uh, saving a people for himself, uh, going that the gospel goes out and through the gospel being spread, people's hearts are changed and they become Christians and are added to the church. So the church is a people, not a building. And Jesus Christ is building his church. And so the reason I say that at the beginning and the reason I titled the sermon that is because when we look at today's text, which is in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, I think this is the reason Luke includes this in his gospel. So he thought it was important enough to include these five verses in here and to include these names of the apostles here because he is showing that Jesus Christ is, is building his church. It's not just about Jesus' healing ministry or his teaching ministry and all of the great things he did in his three years of ministry on earth and all of the Pharisees he angered. It's not just about that. It's about the fact that he is building his church and through these apostles will be building his church through the centuries to come. Matthew 16, verses eight, verse 18 uh, or right in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his apostles and he says, um, who do people say that I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And then Peter responds with, no, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds in verse 18 with, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus himself says he is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. So as we go through today's text, we're going to work through it uh, in a couple of spots. But as we go through it, uh, we're going to see three principles for us to remember as Christ is building his church. Number one, the church is built with prayer. Number two, the church is sent with a message and number three, some will turn away. So with point, starting with point number one, the church is built with prayer. Let's get into the text. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he, being Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So in and amongst these, all these things that he had been doing at, up to this point, up, um, the, the healings, the casting out demons, the explaining who he was, the teaching of God's word in a powerful way, this passage comes up. And Jesus, in the midst of all of that ministry of all the people that are sick and all the people that are still possessed and all of the people that still need to hear God's word preached, Jesus takes the time to depart and pray. Think about the, the magnitude of that for a minute. Think about 
how important Jesus' ministry is. If anybody had an important ministry on this planet, it was Jesus. And he takes time out to pray. Luke tells us back in chapter 5 that Jesus uh, would slip away to desolate places. He says he he would often depart And some translations say slip away to desolate places to pray. Here he leaves the crowds to pray. When he feeds the 5,000, after that, people want to talk to him and they're pressing around him for more and he leaves to pray. In Gethsemane, the night before he's arrested, he goes off alone. He tells his apostles, wait here. He tells them to pray, but then he goes off alone and prays. So when we look at this, we see how important prayer is to Jesus in his ministry. And we see at the beginning of this text that how important it is as he's about to go and name his apostles. He goes and he spends all night in prayer. So looking at this point of the church is built with prayer, there's two sub-points I have. Uh, the first one is that prayer is persistent, and the second one is that prayer is our words directed to God. So prayer is persistent. As I said, Jesus takes, he often takes time out to go and pray. We see this throughout his ministry, throughout the New Testament. We see him doing this in the Gospels. And the thing is, not only do we see him exemplifying it, but we see him teaching it. He teaches his apostles how to pray. We have some of his prayers recorded, and we can see even the words he used to pray. So Jesus exemplifies it, he teaches it, and he commands it. And he expects it to be a regular part of our lives and for us to be coming to the Lord regularly with our prayers. In the, when he's teaching his disciples on how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when it gets to the one part, he says, give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say, give us for this, give me what I need for this week, Lord, or give me what I need for the year, or any other amount of time. No, he says, give us this day. So Jesus expects that we as believers, as people who have put our faith in him and who trust in who God is and in his goodness, his sovereignty, and his holiness, he expects that we are going to go to him regularly, daily, in prayer. So we need to be persistent in the regularity of our prayers. But the other thing he expects us to be persistent in is the fact that we keep bringing requests. And we keep bringing the requests until we get an answer. So Luke chapter 18, he tells the parable of the persistent widow. And he says in the parable, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So you can imagine the, the, the judge in his house or at his office, and this woman keeps showing up every day, maybe multiple times a day, going, judge, hello, when am I going to get this answer? When are you going to deal with this case? We need an answer. And day after day, she keeps coming. And for a while, verse 4, he 
for a while, the judge refuses. But afterward, he said to him, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then the Lord said, hear what that unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In other words, if the unrighteous judge is going to give her an answer, don't you think the righteous God of the universe who loves you and who made you in his image is going to answer you? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Um, I have four kids, and every night when they go to bed, we still pray with them, even though uh, a few of them are teenagers now. We still pray with them before they go to bed, and we've done this ever since they were little. But one of our daughters, her name's Mary-Kate, Mary Kate, we've called her ever since she was like four years old, our little prayer warrior, because if something's wrong or if there's somebody who needs prayer, somebody's having an issue, she will come to to us and ask what's going on and ask if she can pray for them. And we're like, of course you can pray for them. So at night, every night before she goes to bed, she will pray through a list of names and she will just say, Lord, help and then she'll list them off, and she'll say, Lord, help great-grandpa Dirks, Grandpa Siemens, Grandpa Unger, um, Mike Francis, Pastor Greg's son, Benji. And now there's other ones. But with those ones in particular, she has prayed for a long time, and she keeps continuing to pray. And the Lord has answered her prayers, as simple as they are. So, for instance, with her great-grandpa Dirks, great-grandpa Dirks is... Uh, now 97 years old, and he lives in a home, um, in a care home in Abbotsford, and loves Jesus, but he's had a number of health issues over the past, I don't know, six, seven years, where he's had um, heart attacks, now he's got a pacemaker, he's actually had the pacemaker for quite a while, but he's had heart attacks, he has had issues with infections and multiple hospitalizations. When he was 94, he fell down, broke his hip, had to get a hip replacement. And yet through all of these things, she keeps praying every night for him. And through all of these things, he keeps recovering and he keeps moving forward with joy. And every day at his home, the nurses will ask him to stand up at dinner time and pray for the meal for everybody. The Lord is answering her prayers for Grandpa Dirks. For her Grandpa Siemens, he had a heart attack on Christmas Day of 2016. And the road to recovery was a little bit tough. And through all of that, she kept praying, Lord, help Grandpa Siemens, help Grandpa Siemens, help Grandpa Siemens. And now Grandpa, being my dad, is back to his farming every day and whistling and singing those crazy old commercial jingles from the 50s and 60s that he still remembers. Grandpa Unger, my father-in-law, went through a major depression to the point where the family was not sure if he would ever come out of this. It was incredibly hard. And yet through all of that, she kept praying, Lord, help Grandpa Unger, help Grandpa Unger, every day. And now we're over a year past his recovery. And he's riding his motorcycle, making people laugh, being the same old grandpa that we remember. 
Pastor Greg's son, Benji. If you know Pastor Greg, he comes and preaches here sometimes. Greg's son, Benji, has a rare disease which causes him to develop uh, slower than what we would call normal children. And at two and a half, Benji still hadn't walked. And they weren't sure when this would happen, if it would happen. And um, so my daughter said, I'm going to start praying for Benji. And within a few weeks of her praying for him, he started walking with a walker and then started walking, holding on to Greg's hand. And now he can just walk freely and loves running the circuit around the worship center uh, at church on a Sunday. The Lord answers our persistent prayers. These were nothing fancy, just a young lady who trusts that Jesus hears her, and she keeps praying for others persistently. Second sub point is that prayer is our words directed to God. Notice the end of verse 12 here. It says that Jesus, he went off to pray, and he was praying to God. Okay, so uh, the reason I want to make that point and clarify what our prayers are, it's being our words to God, prayer isn't God's word to us. Okay, God doesn't pray to us. We pray to him. And most of you are like, yeah, clearly. But here's the reason I say this. is because in the church today, there's a movement that people will call listening prayer, where they will say, what you have to do is just go and sit silently before the Lord, empty your mind, and see what comes to your mind. And that's the Lord speaking to you. This isn't prayer. When we look at what prayer is, prayer scripturally, when you look at examples of prayer, you see Jesus praying, you see him teaching us how to pray. There is nothing about sitting silently and emptying your mind before the Lord. Prayer is our words to God. I was at a conference once, um, and we were listening to the speaker, the keynote speaker. He had like five messages at this conference, and they were fantastic. And he was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of this one, he put out this call for everybody to go into the world, to be harvesters in the harvest, for us to be sharing the gospel and the needs around the world, the many places that still hadn't heard about Jesus and languages and ethnicities and all of these people. And I was sitting there at the end going, yes, amen. Now let's pray. Let's pray for these people. And at the end of the conference or at the end of the message, what he was supposed to do was leave the stage and somebody else would come up and lead us in prayer. So he does, he leaves, and I'm sitting there waiting, and the other friends that are with me were sitting there waiting, let's pray, let's pray. And this lady gets up and goes, now that we have that information, let's hear what the Lord has to say. Pardon me? Information? We just heard what the Lord had to say. The Lord's servant, the shepherd, stood here with God's word in his hands and explained it to us and said it to us and preached it. 
to a point that our hearts and our minds are being affected and we wanted to pray about what he said. God did speak to us. Sitting in silence was not God speaking to us and it was not what the congregation needed. We needed to be praying. We needed to be praying. We needed to be crying out to God. Prayer by definition involves us crying out to God like David does in the Psalms or like Hannah does in 1 Samuel or like Jesus in Gethsemane or even Jesus on the cross when he cries, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. That's prayer. Not sitting in silence like some Eastern mystic or some ancient Gnostic. So listen, question for you. Since we have access to God's throne of grace through Christ, through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his blood covering our sins, since through that the veil has been torn and we can go to God directly, why don't we do it more? Why don't I do it more? Why don't I do this more when I am struggling? Why don't I go to him and bring him all my cares and all my anxieties and all my struggles? Even on a Sunday morning when we get together and we have the preached word central to the service, which it should be, why don't we pray more? Why don't we pray more? In the Gospels, Jesus doesn't give the church uh, church growth strategies. He doesn't even tell us, this is how you should preach. What does he do? He tells us how to pray. Even when you look at the books of the Bible, the whole book of Psalms is a collection of 150 prayers to God. Prayers of praise, prayers of pain and anguish, prayers with questions prayers of assurance of faith. It's a whole book of prayers. One pastor recently said, the Bible doesn't have a whole book dedicated to preaching, but it does have a whole book dedicated to prayer. When we think about all that Jesus did, how he exemplified prayer, how he taught us to pray, how he commanded us to pray, how he invites us to pray, and even when you look at Romans chapter 8, and the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God doing what? Interceding for us. Jesus is still praying. Why don't we go to him more? So I urge you to pray more. If you find that uh, you're too busy, uh, Think about the priority that, of prayer, the priority that Jesus placed on prayer. Think of the priority that you see in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul places on prayer. Think about the priority that Scripture places on prayer. And give it that kind of priority. And if you need help, if you need resources, if you need ideas of how to put out the distractions, feel free to come and talk with me or talk with, send Matt an email or talk with Amy. Amy's a major prayer warrior. Use these resources that are at your fingertips and prioritize prayer in your life. All right? All right. Point number two. 
The church is sent with a message. Starting verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. I'll stop there for now. So Jesus names his apostles. He comes down off the mountain. He names them. He stands before the great crowd. So imagine, he's got um, this crowd of disciples of, who knows, a hundred more people there. And he needs to select 12. And so he prays all night and he selects them. And, this, and he calls them apostles. And so this word in ancient Greek, before biblical Uh, Before the time of the New Testament, before the time of Christ, in ancient Greek, this word was often used of uh, ships that had commerce. So you think of like the freighters that you see in uh, Vancouver, in the harbor, and them waiting all to come in off of Stanley Park. You think of, of these. They're coming in with goods. They're carrying things. This is what an apostle, an apostolos, that's how it was used in ancient Greece. So when Jesus uses it, what does he mean? He means that he has these people that he's going to be sending out, but not just sending out with nothing, they're sending out with something, with the gospel, with the message of who Jesus is and the message of the kingdom of God, that it is here and that it has come in Christ. And when you look at any list of the apostles through the New Testament, you will see that Peter is always the first one named. So Peter is always the first one named because he is the preeminent. He's the leader of the apostles. Back in that verse I read earlier from Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says that your name is Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Peter, the name Peter, means rock. So when he says on this rock, he is meaning Peter that he's going to build his church. Now, that needs some explanation because the Roman Catholics historically have said that that this means, oh, Peter was the first pope. But that's not exactly what Jesus means. This This is not an argument for the papacy. What this is, is Jesus saying that through Jesus, through, er, through Peter, through Peter's ministry, that the gospel will be opened up to the whole world, not just the people in Jerusalem and Judea, but to the whole world, all ethne in Greek, all ethnicities, all Gentiles, through Peter. And you see this happen, actually, in Acts chapter 10. Peter gets a dream from the Lord where he sees all these unclean foods, and Peter says, I'm not touching one of those, Lord, not me. Far be it from me to become unclean. And what does God say to him? He says, Peter, don't call unclean what I've named clean. And when he comes out of that dream, some men show up and take him over to a gentleman's house named Cornelius. And Cornelius, Acts tells us, is a God-fearing Gentile. And so he goes into the house and he shares the gospel with them and they believe and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles in that house the same way he did upon the disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. So through Peter, 
Peter had been given the keys to the kingdom. And so he opened the door to all nations being now open to the, gen- to, to the gospel. All Gentiles now could hear the gospel. The gates of hell were no longer going to be able to prevent the gospel from spreading around the globe. This is what Jesus even told the disciples to do at his ascension, right? In Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, when Jesus is about to ascend, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And again in Acts verse one, chapter, Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says, "And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." And when Jesus chose his apostles, he was showing that his church, his ministry wasn't ending with his death on the cross. And his ministry wasn't ending when he ascended after his resurrection. No, his ministry was continuing, and they were continu- it was continuing through the apostles who were going to carry this message to all parts of the known world at that time and even beyond. History tells us that Thomas went to India. History tells us that the other apostles went to different parts of the Middle East, and the apostle Paul, who then gets called ends up taking the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire, planting churches all along the way. You can see the Holy Spirit working through the people of God. After Jesus' ascension, Jesus keeps building his church. And that has happened all the way until today. The Holy Spirit continues to work in the world to the point where now, today, There's over 2 billion Christians in the world. Think of that number. It went from this handful 2,000 years ago to now over 2 billion. And no matter what the gates of hell have tried to do against it, whether that's in the form of the Soviet Union trying to eradicate Christianity out of their country and trying to quench the... Holy Spirit's work through his people, it hasn't worked. Or through any regime you think of, or through any ideology that you can think of, all the atheists, all of the false religions, you think of the Muslim conquests, how they tried to go through North Africa and eradicate Christianity. And while those parts of the world will claim that they're Muslim now, the gospel is working there. And the Holy Spirit continues to work through the people of God, sharing the gospel. And more and more and more people keep coming to Christ. The gospel is spreading. The people of God are sharing the message. The church is sent with a message. I have a graph here of China, or it's not, a, it's not a picture of China. It's a graph showing over the course of the last 60 years how Christianity has spread in China. So you go back to 1950, pre-communist revolution. Communist revolution comes in the mid-60s. Notice that line doesn't change. 
Mao thought he could eradicate Christianity from his country. They persecuted the Christians. They killed Christians. What happened? It just continued to go. And then about 20 years ago, you can see the steep increase to now to the point where some estimates say that there are over 100 million, 100 million Christians in China today, even though the government has been intensely persecuting Christians throughout the decades. Christ is building his church. The church is bringing that message. William Carey, who's considered the father of the modern missions movement uh, back in the 1700s, he was asked about the risk he was about to take by going overseas and taking the gospel. And he said, I am not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. It's a convicting statement. What are we succeeding in? If you look at your time, if you look at how you spend your money, what are you succeeding in? Are you succeeding, succeeding in gaining the most toys? Are you succeeding in uh, your job and getting promotions? Are you succeeding in your fantasy football league? What are you succeeding in? There's a lot of things that we tend to prioritize over prayer and over the sharing of the gospel. And that needs to change in our lives. So how are you succeeding in sharing the gospel in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with your kids, with your spouse, in word and deed? When you take that message into these places... Can your spouse say of you that you are loving him or her with the love of Christ and you are leading your family in a way that will lead them to love Jesus more and to repent of sin more and to believe the gospel more? We need to be sharing this message with others. And as we go and share the love of God with others, and as we love God and love others, as we go about our lives... There will be people that come along that, go, that show uh, that they love Jesus. We share it with them and they'll be like, yes, I believe. And they will grow and you will see them persevere to the end. But then there will be some who, like in the parable of the soils, grow up fast, seem to believe, but then they turn away. Some will turn away. The last point. The last part of Luke Chapter 6, verse 16 says, And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Jesus chooses 12 apostles, and they all start off well, and they all are with him, and they all go off into the towns. Later on in Luke, you'll see Jesus send them off to heal people, to cast out demons, to teach, and they will go out and they'll come back and they'll report back to Jesus of all the great things that have happened including Judas. But then he betrays him. And Jesus actually knew this would happen. John chapter 17, the night before he's arrested, Jesus is praying. And he says, while I was with them, being the apostles, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled you can look up that scripture. It's Psalm 109. 
That's the psalm that Jesus is attributing, the wicked man in that psalm, he's attributing to Judas. Even in John chapter 6, it says, many disciples turn away from following Jesus when they start hearing about what it actually will take to follow him. That following him won't be easy, it won't be glorious, that there will be struggles, that you will have to take up your cross and follow him. A lot of disciples turned away. Disciples turned away. Some people will turn away. When we look at Judas, did he profess Christ? You see, as Christians, we need to profess Christ, that he is our Lord and Savior. We need to proclaim him. We need to spread the gospel to others, share who he is, tell them the peace that they can have with God through Jesus. Yes, amen, profess, proclaim, but we also need to persevere. Judas did the first two. He professed, he proclaimed, but he did not persevere. And I'm sure you know others who have, people that you know in your life who you've seen do the same thing. One former pastor of mine, for instance, fantastic worship leader, could play practically any instrument, fantastic voice, led the congregation well. Eventually, he became a lead pastor preached well, taught people about Jesus, spread the gospel, baptized people. And some rough times came along in his church, and he ended up having to resign because the church could no longer, it had, it had gotten so small uh, that they couldn't actually afford his salary anymore. And so he resigned. And after that, when I would talk to him, he would say, you know what, why do we even do church? We don't have to get together on a Sunday. I can do church at home with my kids or even as I'm drinking a beer with my buddies. That can be church. And then as the weeks went on, you started to hear him not even talk about that, but being, saying things like, you know, Confucius said some pretty good things that kind of align with what Jesus said. And I heard uh, some stuff from the Quran. Man, that kind of aligns with what Jesus said too. And you could see him turning slowly, slowly, week by week to the point now, about a decade later, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Some people will turn away. We need to persevere in the faith. We need to. This is part of what prayer is. Part of prayer is helping you persevere in the faith. If you have doubts, tell God about them. If you have concerns, if you have a problem with, the, if you can't understand the problem of evil in the world and you need to understand, cry out to God about it. Talk to others about it. Seek out the answers. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. Yes, and Amen. Take advantage of the, all the, the spiritual disciplines that the Lord has provided you with, including attending church. Don't forsake the assembly. Matthew 24, verse 12, Jesus actually says, He who endures to the end will be saved. See, Christians persevere. Christians will persevere. Christians will waver, they will doubt, they will wrestle with problems. They may even have a time where they walk away for a bit, but Jesus Christ, being that hound of heaven, will pursue them, and he will not let his sheep go. They will come back. 
So for those of you that know people who have walked away, what can you do? You can pray, and you can pray, and then you can pray. Persist in prayer, and then when the time is right, share the gospel with them again. Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them the gospel. Tell them the good news and how that fits into their lives. Tell them the amazing work that Christ did, living the perfect life, dying the sacrificial death, and rising again. And then when you go home, pray and sleep well, knowing that while you're asleep, that God, that Jesus Christ is building his church. He continues to work, even when we aren't. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're building your church and that the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. When we look in the world, when we look in the news, when we see what's going on around us, it looks to us like you aren't winning. But we know, Lord, when we look at your word, you tell us that you are winning and that in the end, you will return, you will bring your kingdom in its fullness, and you will wipe away all evil, every tear, every sin, and you will create a new heavens and a new earth where you reign fully forever and ever. We look forward to that day, but while we struggle through this time, Lord, while you are reigning from heaven, I pray that you strengthen us. Lord, comfort us. Send your Holy Spirit to comfort our hearts, to lead us to believe the gospel and to repent and to continue to tell the good news about who you are and the joy that that can bring to, your life, to our lives. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.